An independent agency created to fast-track the sale of excess federal properties is falling behind on its goals. Congress created the Public Buildings Reform Board back in 2016 to recommend federal properties for expedited sale and disposal. Some of the board-recommended properties have sold in recent years, but the board is also running into many of the bureaucratic hurdles it was meant to bypass. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And just review the mission of this reform board, Jory, because GSA already has ostensibly within its purview the ability to sell buildings. They do, and GSA throughout this entire process is the entity that's still selling those buildings. The Public Buildings Reform Board simply comes up with recommendations, and from there it's up to GSA and the Office of Management and Budget to actually pull the trigger on those sales. But the whole concept dates back to 2016 with the Federal Assets Sale and Transfer Act, or FASTA. The idea is that this legislation stood up the board and would give them the power to really cut through the bureaucratic red tape of selling facilities. It can be a years-long process to do that, even for buildings that by all accounts are underutilized or completely vacant. To give you a sense of the scope here, there's some data we have from the federal real property profile, and this is a little dated from fiscal 2021, but that showed that there are nearly 900 federal buildings that are underutilized and nearly eight thousand that are completely unused. And these are federally owned properties, never mind the least stuff, correct? This is the stuff that the federal government owns outright. Wow. And so the board has what to show then for the six years it's been in business? Well, less than what they bargained for. GSA has sold 10 of the properties that the board has recommended at this point. The proceeds are a little less than $200 million, and that's well below the board's target of getting 500 to $700 million from those properties. We heard recently from former Congressman Nick Rahal. He is a member of the board. He told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee that there are two remaining properties from this high-value asset list of properties, but it's taken GSA years to get those properties ready. And at this point, they might have missed their window for getting the top dollar for those properties. The length of time to sell these properties will likely cost the government hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, when considering the cost savings over the next 30 years. Well, yes, because the buildings are needing to be maintained while they're there. And as you say, they've missed the peak market. I mean, commercial real estate is not doing so well now, thanks to the pandemic. No, it's certainly not. And you make an interesting point here, Tom, that a lot of these properties, just because they are not being used, doesn't mean that they are in pristine condition. The GSA has to pour considerable amount of resources into these buildings for there even to be bidders who are interested in it in the first place. And the inventory is mixed, isn't it? I mean, people think of federal building, they think of big, beautiful limestone or sandstone or granite structures in the classical architecture. A lot of these are suburban. A lot of them are warehouses. A lot of them are garages that could have collapsing roofs. I mean, a lot of it's kind of crappy, fair to say. Yeah, it's exactly as you describe it. You know, some of it's parking lots. Some of it is stuff that is not even structures, but just land. Yeah, okay. And so what has slowed down the board so much? They're supposed to make recommendations, I guess, presumably to cut through the politics such that they can state there's an objective look at this property and it should be sold. And so a politician can't say, oh, no, 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 that's in my territory. That's in my district. You got to keep that gem. Is that what's going on? It is. And, you know, the first sign of trouble was a couple of years ago when the board recommended the sale of a National Archives and Records Administration facility in Seattle. They were going to move the records somewhere else in the country, in California, and that ran into legal trouble 
Native American tribes sued the government, saying that they would make those records inaccessible to them. And the Office of Management and Budget listened to them. They blocked the sale of that property, saying that it was against the Biden administration's goals of working with tribal governments. And from there, the board came up with this subsequent round of recommendations in December of 2021. OMB blocked those entirely, said that the entire list of things, they wanted them to go back to the drawing board. That led to two members of the board resigning, and the board did not have a quorum for just about all of calendar year 2022. And to top it all off, the board is not having access to the most recent update of the federal real property profile. Again, this data that we're looking at is two years old, and agencies have not been forthcoming with data saying, oh, we would love to get rid of X, Y, or Z. Right. So they were hoping to get $2.5 billion from those recommendations that OMB rejected outright? Right. That was supposed to be $2.5 billion in proceeds that, as a result of the list being blocked, they didn't get any of that money. Just sitting there rotting away with pigeons running around on the roof. By the way, the profile that you refer to, that's like an inventory of federal properties. Yeah, it's an online database of properties that are available to the public to take a look at here. And, you know, this at this point is, again, something that the board was supposed to overcome, was supposed to cut through. We heard from David Maroney, who is over at the Government Accountability Office. He's their acting director of fiscal infrastructure. He said that FASTA and this board, you know, they were really trying to undergo a new way of doing things, but they've encountered some significant setbacks here with these first two rounds of recommendations. FASTA is effectively a six-year experiment to try and mitigate some of these challenges by testing out new concepts and different ways of disposing of unneeded real property. This experiment has not gone wholly as planned. Yeah, it sounds like it's barely gone at all. So what's next for this board with people resigning and having old inventories to look at to even decide from? Well, the good news is that they do have a quorum that regained in November of 2022. So they have people around to put their heads together, and they are working on their final round of recommendations for December 2024. But after that, the board is set to sunset in May of 2025. So they are really up against the clock here to come up with what they can. And they've had some substantial headwinds in terms of meeting these goals here. So it remains to be clear whether it will deliver on those billions of dollars of savings that they promised in the first place. And is there anything else going on? Any other efforts by GSA or anybody else to try to shrink this federal real estate footprint, which you say has thousands of buildings, hundreds that aren't needed? Well, GSA, interestingly enough, is acting now on what is now a multi-administration goal of freezing and then shrinking the federal real property portfolio here. We heard from Nina Albert, the commissioner of GSA's public building service. Over the past five years, GSA has been able to reduce federally leased office space by about 13 million square feet. That's led to a $6.5 billion cost savings. Albert also said that GSA has been able to shrink the portfolio of federal federally owned office space by another 13 million square feet over that same period of time. Now, of course, the interesting wrinkle here is that the Biden administration, by and large, is trying to bring federal employees back to the office more since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that puts things up in the air in terms of what really is underutilized these days. Albert says that this is something that they're going to be looking at for the years to come. We're going to continue over the next year, I would say, to understand where that pendulum is finally going to rest. I will say 
as a asset manager and portfolio manager, I don't need to wait completely for a final answer. But agencies, before they're willing to give up space, will want to have a better understanding of how they plan to operate for the next term. I guess if they send people back to terrible buildings, maybe the problem will solve itself. I think, who knows? I think some of the vacancies from pandemic are not in the buildings that they want to dispose of. The teleworking is yeah. not happening where these buildings should be disposed of. All right. So it's just a matter yeah. of uh, waiting and see if that board can do anything else in the next year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing here is that the board does get modest appropriations every year from Congress, but part of their operating budget comes from sale of these buildings. And so with things jammed up, they don't have a ton of money to work with. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. 
from that point on, I committed myself, you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, 
I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.